you can open up in your Bible to Genesis chapter 39. Let me tell you what we're going to, uh, what we're going to do. We'll um, have our time in, in Genesis this morning, and then I'm going to do, um, make a point to make sure that I end before or with enough time that we can bring uh, JT and Carla forward. JT is, uh, this is his first Sunday with us today, so our new uh, pastor for students and discipleship. He's over here on the front row, got uh, a front row seat, so to speak, on the good singing this morning. So thank you for belting it out. That was fantastic. Carla is over here. Uh, they had trouble on the way to church today, so they're trying to separate from each other. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Carla, was, Carla was dealing with, uh, with kids, and she got up a little bit later. So towards the end of the service, we'll have time uh, for uh, JT to come forward and just uh, address the church for a few minutes before then we ask for any of our elders or deacons who are here in the service to come down and to gather around them so that we can pray over them. Uh, so we will make sure that we do that in the regularly allotted time that we have for Sunday morning. I just wanted to give you a heads up and let you know uh, what, uh, what was in store for us. But that being said, Genesis chapter 39... I'm going to read this chapter, 39, 1 through 23, and as we're reading, consider, I think, I think probably the theme of this passage, uh, if we were to try to do it in a sentence or a, a phrase or something like that, is the idea that the Lord is with His people to prosper them even in hardship or even in suffering or even in persecution. The Lord is with His people to prosper them no matter what the circumstances are. So have that in mind as we read through Genesis 39 and consider how that's being demonstrated in this particular passage, in this particular episode in the life of Joseph. Genesis 39, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him, he, uh, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food with which he ate." Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. 
And when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank You that by Your written Word, You show us that You are always with Your people, whether in joy or in sorrow, whether in pleasure or in pain. And that because You are always with us, You are always working on us and in us and through us to accomplish Your purposes. Help us to see that more clearly through this episode, through this period of Joseph's life. And help us also to see the way that this pattern finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us understanding now, we ask. Convict us where needed. Comfort us as needed. Do all things according to your will, and it's in the name of Christ we ask this. Amen. So the Lord is with His people to prosper them, whether in success or hardship. That's what goes on with, with Joseph here. Let me do a few things to, to show you in the, in the text, in the passage that we have, the way that we know that this idea of the presence of the Lord and His prospering Joseph is the main idea that we want to get across. Because oftentimes when we come to this passage, the, the episode or the scene that stands out to us is Joseph's interaction with Potiphar's wife. And so a lot of times if you hear someone uh, perhaps talk about Genesis 39, preach or teach it. It's very easy to go to, that, to go to that scene and to present this little conflict between Joseph and the wife as an example of why God's people need to remain moral and sexually pure and resist temptation, all of which is true. All of which is true, all right? But Genesis 39 is here not because the author is meaning to give us a morality tale, tale, yes, tale, T-A-L-E, a morality tale, but because he's wanting to tell us something about the way that God works out His purposes through His people. So, here's how we know that this is more than just a story that gets to morality, be good, don't be bad, all right? By way of repetition of key phrases, <clears throat> key phrases and terms, we get to see very clearly what the author is wanting us to understand. So, four times in this chapter, the author goes out of his way to tell us that the Lord was with Joseph. So, it starts in verse 2. After saying that Joseph had been, had been uh, bought by Potiphar and taken down to Egypt, we're told in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Then he says it again in verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. And then it shows up again down in verse 21, when Joseph is put into prison, we're told, but the Lord was with Joseph. And then at the end, verse 23, the Lord was with him. So, four times the author tells us that the Lord is with Joseph as a way to clue us in to the idea. What I want you to see and understand is that whatever you make of Joseph's temptations, his trials, his suffering, his persecution, you need to know that through all of this, beginning to end, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was not alone. The other thing that, that happens by way of repetition and closely connected with this, the Lord being with Joseph, is the word prosper. Now, depending on your English translation, it may, it may be rendered in a slightly different way, but if you go, for example, to verse 2, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. So, the NAS says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. 
And then down in verse 3, the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. What, what Nasby does there for success and prosper is actually the same Hebrew word. So, the Lord was with Joseph and caused him to prosper. Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that everything he did prospered. And then at the end of the chapter, in verse 23, the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. This is actually the way that the author frames this entire story. He frames at the front end and at the back end this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph and made him prosper. There's no way that you can get around this. When you see it, you can't unsee it. That's what the author wants us to understand. Right? But we need to acknowledge, though, the circumstances surrounding this word of assurance or this word of comfort. Because it's not just simply that the Lord is with Joseph to cause him to prosper. Who doesn't want that? Anyone not want to prosper in life? Anyone not want to prosper with the family or in the workplace or in your personal aspirations and dreams? Everybody, we're built to want to prosper. That's not what the author is wanting us to see. The author is wanting us to see that the Lord is with Joseph and causing him to prosper even as Joseph is being persecuted. So Joseph prospers in spite of his persecution in spite of unjust suffering, God causes Joseph to prosper. The other thing that's interesting here is that in the entire Joseph narrative, so starting at chapter 37 all the way through chapter 50, this is the only place with one exception where God's divine covenant name is used in the Joseph narrative, the, the name Yahweh. Right? It comes up one time in chapter 49, almost at the end of the book, and it's just a brief mention, Jacob is blessing his sons, and he makes this brief mention of Yahweh, waiting for the salvation of Yahweh. But nowhere else does the divine covenant name show up, but here. So there's a tension that exists here because by all of these little distinct features and creative techniques, the author wants us to see, we ought to consider that it's not just merely that God, in a generic sense, is with Joseph to cause him to prosper even when he's being persecuted, but that this is the life-giving, covenant-keeping God who is with Joseph to cause him to prosper. It's one thing to acknowledge that God is in control as some sort of distant king, ruler, sovereign, potentate, right? All that lofty high language that all the old dead guys like to use, and He's ruling and reigning from afar. Well, God's in control. It's another thing, though, when we're going through times of suffering and persecution to say, no, it's not merely that God is large and distant and, ex and exists outside of the realm and time and space. God is also near to His people. God is faithful to us. And even when I'm going through life and being pounded by the waves of life, God is still faithful to His promises, and God is with me no matter what the circumstances of life look like. That is a challenge, but that is what Genesis 39 is intending to show us. Listen, one of the things that we have to get lodged into our mind, and this is why the Scripture is good for us, even if we don't happen to be experiencing something similar to Joseph right now. Scriptures are formative. In other words, it is shaping us, oftentimes, ahead of when we need the formation. Do you, you know what we say? Like, so, parents, you teach your kids certain characteristics or responsibilities, not necessarily because they need it right then at the moment, but because there's one day when they will need it, and when they do need it, hopefully they say, huh, I've already got it. This is the same thing. You, if, if you're a Christian here and you feel like you're going through life in isolation, in silence on your own, and that the world is just taking, taking turns 
punching you around time after time after time. Genesis 39 is here to tell you that God has not abandoned you. He has not left you alone. And not only has He not left you alone, He is sure to prosper you in your weakness and in your suffering. If you're not in a situation where you can readily identify with Joseph, you still need Genesis 39 because you will find yourself there eventually. Young Christians, young people especially, listen to me. Much of the disillusionment that comes over the Christian faith, not all of it, but a significant portion of it, is because young Christians, young people are presented a Christian faith that tells them the Christian faith is the answer or the key to make life good and enjoyable for them. And they don't have categories, they don't have the ability to reckon with how the Christian life is making my life miserable. That doesn't sell. Come to Jesus so that you can suffer. Who signs up for that? And this is not just an Old Testament theme. Paul says to the Philippians that to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. It's been granted. It's been given. Christians are given suffering from the Lord. Paul elsewhere in Acts, when he's trying to encourage and strengthen the churches, tells the Christian leaders and anyone who would listen in no uncertain terms, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. There is no entrance into God's kingdom without suffering. You need Genesis 39 because suffering is what God's people are going to encounter one way or the other. And you need to know and you need to begin to rehearse in your mind and in your heart and preach to yourself over and over and over again so that when that time comes, you know that even though the evidence seems to point in the other direction, no, I know that the Lord is here and I know that the Lord is working. So look then at what's going on with Joseph. Through Joseph... We see that God is always with us and He's always working. There's a sense in which there's a little, there, there are similarities between some of the things going on here with Joseph and some of the things that happened with Jacob earlier. Remember Jacob, when he was having to flee for his life because Esau, his brother, wanted to murder him, was having to run to escape out of the promised land, and God graciously comes to Jacob to say, Jacob... I'm giving you my word, I'm promising you that even when you leave this land, even when you go into this time of exile, I'm promising you that I will be with you and that I will be faithful to you. Joseph is in a similar situation in that he's also outside of the promised land down in Egypt. So it does not matter if you are one of God's people. It does not matter where you happen to find yourself. God is there. If you're Jacob and you're in Paddan Aram, guess what? The Lord is with you. If you're Joseph and you're down in Egypt, guess what? The Lord is with you. If you're Jacob and you have run to Paddan Aram, guess what? God has run with you. If you are Joseph and you've been carried against your will down to Egypt, guess what? God is with you. So it makes no difference where we find ourselves or how it is that we've ended up there. The promise of God still stands. Jesus says this to His disciples. One of the last things that He says to His disciples before He ascends and returns to the Father, He says, I am with you always for the next six months. 
We unfortunately live on the other side of that six months, so that stinks for us. I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of the age is when this age ends and the new age begins. So as long as you exist in this time and space, Jesus himself has promised you as one of his disciples that he is always with you. Always. And he is with you to see to it that you prosper according to his plans. I'm not going to take a lot of time to develop this, but let me just say, just as as an aside, don't misinterpret this idea that God is with his people to prosper them in the sense that prospering his people is always a material kind of prosperity. When you come to the New Testament, the promises of fruitfulness and productivity and prospering don't have to do with cash and possessions. It has more to do with righteousness and holiness and an increase in the family of God. God is with you in your suffering, and when you are being beaten down to prosper you in the sense that He is going to see to it that this is not wasted time for you. He is using this experience to prosper you in Christ's likeness. As Paul says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So he's doing something for you because He is always with you and He's always working. But if that's all that we recognize in what's going on here with Joseph, we've made our focus far, far too narrow because we have to think about what's going on in this chapter in terms of how it fits with the broader story. God is with Joseph to prosper him, not merely so that Joseph can be saved, but so that the generation of God's people can be saved. Remember, the Joseph story opens up in chapter 37 with Joseph having these two dreams about how his family one day is going to come and bow down to him. If you know how the story ends, you know that that's actually what ends up taking place but that the authority that Joseph is given, his exaltation being raised up to a prominent position, is given so that he can save and give life to his brothers, to his family. In other words, God working on Joseph, in Joseph, through Joseph right here, is not only for Joseph, although it is, but it's also for those whom God will use Joseph to save. We need to think about the fact that our view of our life is comically small. When I suffer, when I go through times of testing or trial, nine times, I don't even know if I'd say nine times out of ten, let's just be honest, ten times out of ten, my first thought is how this affects me. I'm so self centered. I'm so caught up in myself, I can't see six inches in front of my nose, and yet we see time and time again in Scripture how God works through the lives of His people such that He is perfecting them and refining them, but in that perfection and in that refinement, He uses them to bring life to others. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that the reason that the Lord does not abandon you in your trouble And the reason that God prospers you in Christ's likeness and holiness and joy and refinement in your times of trouble is not just for you, but for the person who is near you. Mom and dad, when life is putting you through the ringer, That is not just for your sanctification. It is, but it's not just for you. Your kids desperately need to see and know that God is working. They need 
to be sitting under the overflow, the spilling over of God's work in your life so that it will bless and benefit them. And that's one of the reasons why God allows you as a parent to suffer while you're in the midst of all the insanity of child-rearing. So that as He blesses you, you can be a blessing to your children. You can say that when it comes to the workplace. You can say it when it comes to casual acquaintances. God is with us in our trouble to prosper us, not only for us, but also for the generation in which we live. This is what God deemed was necessary to get Joseph to where he needed to be to save his people. He went from a pit in chapter 37 to Potiphar's slave in chapter 39, and before we're out of 39, he's going to be in prison. That path is not accidental. That is the way, the path that God gives Joseph to get to the ultimate goal and destination of being a Savior for his people. We have to look and we have to think that God is bigger than what we give Him credit for. Even then, though, keep in mind that if all we do is see God's work in Joseph's life here in terms of what He's doing for Joseph or what He's doing for that immediate present generation of His brothers, even that is too small a view of what God is doing. All the way back in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm telling you ahead of time that your descendants are going to be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And after they have been mistreated for a while, I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to bring them back to this land. How do God's people get to this strange land? By the way, the strange land ends up being Egypt. That's the story of Exodus. How do God's people get to a strange land? Here's step number one in Genesis 39. They get there because God puts Joseph there. The work that God does in your life, the seeds that are planted for God's kingdom and for His work, it may lay dormant in the ground for hundreds of years, should the Lord wait another hundred years or so to wrap this all up. The work that God does in your life, the prospering that He does, He may already be planting seeds for future generations, two, three, four, twenty down the road, and it will be laid in the ground when you take your dirt nap too. And then God, at the appropriate time, works all things according to the counsel of His will so that all of the little seemingly disconnected, disjointed, random events are pieced together in a seamless whole so that what was done hundreds of years ago bears its fruit in what God is doing at some future date down the road. Don't throw in the towel. Don't do it. Joseph has to live through this in complete isolation and in silence. Joseph does not have another Christian brother to come alongside of him to encourage him. We're told that the Lord is with Joseph but we have no record of the Lord speaking to Joseph specifically to say, Joseph, don't worry about this, I'm with you. For all intents and purposes, Joseph is going through these events on his own and without a single word of encouragement or comfort to say that this is God's work and God's purposes being accomplished. And he persevered. How much more willing and ready ought we to be to persevere knowing God's presence with us and the assurance of His good purposes when we can look at Scripture over and over and over again and say, see, that's just the way that God works. I know that it doesn't seem like He's here, but He tells me that He is. 
Look at Jesus. Jesus says to His disciples on the night before He is crucified, there is coming a time soon, it's about to happen, where you are all going to scatter and you are going to leave Me alone. He says this in John 16, 32. You're going to each go to your own home. You're going to leave Me alone. And yet, I am not alone because the Father is with Me. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned, to suffer alone, and yet Jesus can say, nevertheless, the Father has not left me. Jesus suffers unjustly, and yet does so knowing that this suffering is God's purpose that will bear fruit in generation after generation after generation. Listen to Isaiah 53.10. This is in the famous passage of the suffering servant, right? He was beaten and bruised because of us. Isaiah 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That last line there, will prosper in his hand, that is the exact phrasing that's used in Genesis 39 that the Lord was with Joseph and caused him to prosper. Everything that was in Joseph's hand prospered. The culmination, the climax of that kind of prospering is in the suffering, shameful, humiliating death of the Savior that has bought us and the King that we follow. It should not be a surprise to us then when our path is going to take us through similar sufferings. We need to be able to sing in the same way that God caused His suffering servant to prosper through His pain and His agony, He will cause us to prosper in our pain and agony as well. So God is always with His people to cause them to prosper. Second thing that we, we might want to say is precisely because God is with His people to cause them to prosper, God's people ought to walk in their integrity. Let me, let me flesh this out a little bit. This is, the, the difficulty with testing and trial is that it exposes our weakness. It puts us in difficult situations as we're being squeezed. So we read earlier from James chapter 1, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because you know that God is doing something. Then a little bit later, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, or some of your virgins may have tests, and then later, don't say when you're tempted. Did you, did you know that that is the same word in both verses? The word that James uses for test or trial in verse 2 is the same word that he uses for tempting in chapter 12. Here's what I think the significance is in that. I think there is an overlap or a way in which in every trial or every test there is also a temptation that comes with it. Right? You're tested on your way to work because the driver in the lane next to you cuts you off when you're already running late. That's a test. That's a trial. may not be huge, but let's just call it that. Is there a temptation that goes with that test and trial? You laugh because you know there is. What is the temptation that goes with that test? Oh, now we're too holy for that. The temptation is to do something in return. I'm going to hit the gas. I'm going to pull out around. I'm going to cut them off, see how they like it. The temptation is to say something in the car. Well, they're not going to hear it, but I'll just vent my anger anyway. Or any number of other things. We'll stop there. 
Right? In every test, there is an accompanying temptation that comes with it. In Joseph's situation, Joseph has every opportunity to say, this, this is what I get? Where is God in this? Why, how could God let my brothers do that to me? How could God let me be sold off like property to these pagans? How could God let me go from being the favored son to being a house slave for this Egyptian? And every day he bears up under that frustration and that disillusionment. He can chuck it all. He can throw his house. Okay, fine. I guess I was wrong. And then here comes Potiphar's wife with a temptation. Why maintain your integrity at this point, Joseph? When the woman appeals to Joseph at the relational level, the, the human, the, the horizontal level, right? Joseph says, I can't do this because you belong to my master, right? That it, just on a horizontal level, that would be wrong. But the biggest reason is what he says at the end. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph is in a mess, and he's still talking about the fact that he needs to live in a way that is going to be pleasing to God. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what Peter says, and consider how it relates to the situation that Joseph is in. More importantly, how it relates to our lives and our walk with the Lord. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Just stop right there for a second. Arm yourself with what purpose? With what purpose, people? To suffer. You arm yourself. You get ready. You equip yourself to suffer in the flesh because that's what Jesus did, and you're imitating Him. You get ready to suffer. And he goes on, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having once pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation or the same excesses of disorder, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Do you, do you hear that? You get ready to suffer because you're in Christ, because you're following Christ, and because Christ suffered on His way to glory. You want the glory of Christ? Get ready to suffer. There is no other way to get to exaltation than to be made very low. And understand, when the world looks at you and they see you resisting their calls, when you are not advocating or when you are not affirming their habits and patterns and behaviors because you have been called to follow Christ, they are not going to respect that. They're not going to see that as being noble. They're going to find it offensive and they're going to take your pursuit of Christ as an opportunity to Pick, to pick at you, to kick you when you're down. Don't go back. Don't buckle. Don't go with that woman. Don't go with that man. Don't entertain that sin. Don't succumb to that lust. 
You had all the necessary time in your life before Christ to do that. That time is gone. God is with you. God is prospering you. It's going to be worth it. You will be rewarded for walking faithfully with Him. Your integrity will be recognized and acknowledged one day by God Himself. Do not, do not think that you have been left alone and therefore it doesn't really matter and then just go headlong into sin. Don't do that. The last thing that we might say is again, going back and looking at Christ, consider that the one who is our merciful and sympathetic high priest knows what it's like to suffer in isolation, knows what it's like to suffer through silence, knows that even in spite of the solitude and the silence, that all of these things are working according to the fruitful prospering of God's servants to bring life to His people, and call out to Jesus. Ask Jesus to give you what you need to stand firm and to stand fast, because Jesus has already walked through everything that you have or will encounter to the nth degree and has been faithful. He can give you what you need to remain faithful in your times of difficulty and despair. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. Don't act like it. Bow with me in prayer. Father, it is so easy in the pressures of this life to lose sight of eternity, to think that the whole of our existence is limited to what we experience in the here and now, to fail to remember or to remind ourselves that this light momentary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory for us, to consider that the work that you do to refine your people through suffering, even when we suffer unjustly, is not only a gift to us to cause us to thrive and prosper in Christ, but is a gift that you cause to prosper for other people as you use the fruit of our suffering to bring life and blessing to those who are around us. Would you help us to be faithful, Lord, in every way, in every trial? Thank you that you have promised never to leave us or to forsake us, that we know that because Christ himself has walked this lonely path, and that it has led him to glory and exaltation that we will one day end up there as well. And we thank you and praise you that you have placed within us your Holy Spirit to assure us and comfort us that your promises are true for us individually and true for us as a people. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to transition Two, JT coming up in, uh, in just a moment here. Uh, we asked JT, since he was, this was his first Sunday with us, and he hits the ground running tomorrow, we asked if, uh, as before we pray over him, if he'd like to take a few minutes just to address the congregation that he is now coming to serve. So he's going to take a few moments to do that. I'll follow JT uh, by asking the, uh, the elders and the deacons to come down and to surround him, and I'll give a brief charge to the congregation and to JT before we begin to wrap up the service. So, JT, come on up, and all of a sudden it just hit me. Andy's thinking ahead. Good man. All right. It's so good to be here with you all. I think we, not think, we left Edgewood back in November of 2016, and so being here about a month ago and then being here today, and I was just thinking as we were singing and uh, praying and spending time in the Word together, it, it really just feels like yesterday that we were here, and so it's just such an odd thing going on five years, but it doesn't feel all that long ago, and so I'm extremely excited to be here with y'all. <clears throat> Jonathan told me, said, just take five minutes, try and convince the church that you're excited to be here. Uh, I don't have 30, uh, so I'll take a couple of minutes to try and do that. I wanted to, to just write out 
what I wanted to say just because of, of nerves and the, the heaviness of the day for us and for our family. And so I just want to read some, uh, some thoughts that I had real quick. <clears throat> All of this is, is still uh, quite surreal for us, for Carla and I. Uh, we certainly come with a mixture of joy and excitement, but also a heaviness to this task. Uh, some of the greatest men I know have served or are serving here at Edgewood, so it is no small thing uh, for me to be with you here today. There's parts of me that would open up the word and, and gladly preach right here and right now, just with a young man's excitement, but at the same time, there's other parts of me that would gladly run behind a pew and hide for a little while. It's because we love Edgewood. Uh, through the pastoring of my father-in-law, to the discipleship from Jonathan and other men, and to the godly influences of many men and women, the Lord has used Edgewood to help grow me into a deeper love for him, a delight and desire for his word, and, to seek, and a desire to seek to build my life upon God's word. Uh, through the necessary redundancy of my father-in-law, I came to know the love and forgiveness of God in greater and deeper ways as he would recount stories like the sinful woman forgiven from Luke chapter 7. I remember having my eyes open to the big story of scripture and how it all pointed to Jesus as we would study various covenants under Jonathan's teaching. Uh, I also <clears throat> fondly, and, and not also times not so fondly, remember leaving Sunday school class uh, quite a few times frustrated from what Jonathan would say. Uh, only to find that my frustrations were not with what was said, but rather what Scripture says. And so, and so I had to decide, would I submit to what the Bible says, or would I want the Bible say what I want it to say? I remember with great joy Wednesday night men's Bible studies, where the Lord greatly grew me, even as I struggled to stay awake because of my weird sleeping habits from working at the coffee shop. Uh, and many men and women have poured into mine and Carla's life, and we are so incredibly thankful for it. The Lord greatly blessed our family in our years at Winbrook. Uh, he's been so good to us. Uh, I knew, I've always desired to be in vocational ministry, uh, and uh, nothing could really prepare me, though, for the joys uh, that, that would come with actually experience being in full-time vocational ministry, both in the good times and the difficult times at Winbrook. I especially love the students that I was able to pastor in my time there. I was able to see them grow in their love for the Lord and a love for God's word and a desire for it, a delight in it. Saying goodbye to, to my students was, was one of the most emotionally difficult uh, things I've ever had to do. I'm someone who's quite unfamiliar with tears, and so it's been a particularly exhausting past few weeks and probably odd for the students to see, uh, see me crying. Uh, however, in saying all that, and, and I can't say this enough or emphasize this enough, in saying all of that, I can say that the decision for us to come to Edgewood has been one of the easiest decisions that Carla and I have made. We love this church, and I'm excited to come alongside so many men and women whom I love and respect to seek to glorify God in all that we do. Carla and I are excited to bring our three kids, Merritt, Ellis, and Lila, to Edgewood and raise them here. We're excited to have you come alongside us in discipling them to come to know Jesus, and we pray to love Jesus. Uh, and so uh, we're excited to be here and excited to be here with y'all. So I just wanted to encourage you, if you're going to pray for us and pray for our ministry, here's just a few things that you could pray for us. We ask that you would join in praying that we would know the Lord's grace and being just very ordinarily faithful. We don't desire to be special. We want to be faithful to the Lord, to his word, and to his people here at Edgewood. Pray that the name of Jesus would be greatly glorified and exalted through our lives and through our ministry. We desire to bless his name, and we desire to be a blessing to you. And how to pray for our ministry. We desire that three things would happen uh, in our ministry. And we pray this not just for students, student ministry, but as we have opportunity to minister to the body here at Edgewood. The thing that we need more than anything is the word of the Lord. And in the word of the Lord, we see that God delights and God desires to reveal himself to his people. That's incredible. So would you first pray that the Lord would be at work in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, opening up our ears so that we can hear well what the Lord would say to us in his scriptures. And secondly, as he does that, that he would then open our eyes to see and behold 
wonderful things in his word. And ultimately, the one that the word uh, points to, that all of the word draws near to, the embodied word of God, Jesus himself, that we would come to behold him. And thirdly, that as we behold him, just as Jonathan preached today, as we behold Jesus, we would be made to look more like Jesus, being transformed from one degree of glory to another, that we would truly become more and more like Jesus. So we thank you for kindly welcoming Carla and I back into the fold. Uh, At least it's been kind so far. Uh, We pray that you would welcome our kids just as kindly. They're a little crazy and wild, so, so be gracious to them. It's the merit blood within them, not me. Uh, so, so thank you, Edgewood, and we look forward to, to serving you uh, and being a blessing uh, to you and to this, to this body and ultimately to, to blessing the name of our Lord and Savior. Just have a seat for a minute. I'll bring you up. Carla, go ahead and hop up and you can come sit with your husband. <clears throat> One thing that you'll learn very quickly about Carla, she loves the spotlight, so... I'm, I'm, I really am going to keep this brief. You're like, holy cow, he's getting back up and opening his Bible again. This is, this is going to be very brief. I'm going, to, I'm going to kill two birds, so to speak, with one stone uh, in terms of trying to give uh, a, a charge or a word of encouragement to JT and to Carla, and also along with that, uh, a charge to you. And it's very easy to do because uh, Paul basically lays it out for us in a letter to Timothy, uh, a double-sided charge. So let me, let me read this paragraph. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Paul says to Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. All right, so, so first to JT and Carla very closely with him. My encouragement, my challenge to you is nothing less than what Paul Timothy here, which is watch over yourself. Proverbs says it, keep watch diligently over your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep a watch over your heart, over your mind, over your character, what God is doing to refine you into the image of Christ so that you are constantly fighting sin, and running to the sanctification that's in Jesus Christ. And as you pay attention and keep watch over your own heart and mind and conduct, watch over your teaching. Get your nose in the book and keep it there. And read and read and read and feed on the Word, because as you feed on the Word, you are going to be sanctified further. God is going to guard you and keep you and make you prosperous as you hold his word in your hand. Carla, keep his nose in the book. Make sure he reads and reads and reads. Encourage him, challenge him, be that faithful wife that calls him to account lovingly, graciously when necessary, who encourages him also faithfully during difficult times, during the best of times. Do all of that for the good of his soul and for the good of the ministry that he has here at Edgewood. And then Edgewood, this works on the flip side as well. Did you notice that at the end, Paul tells Timothy to pay close attention to your teaching because as you hold fast to the truth, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. As a church, what we ought to want more than anything from our shepherds are men who stick close to the Scriptures more than anything. 
personality traits, skills, giftings, any, anything, right? Character is important. That comes through the Word as well. But in terms of what they spend their time doing, where they devote themselves, we want them devoting themselves to the Word, not only because it is to their benefit, it's to JT and Carla's benefit for them to be spending time in the Word, but because it rebounds to our benefit. So to that end, pray and encourage the overbees, to stick to God's Word. Because when you encourage them to do that, and when you pray that God would continue to feed them richly through their Word, you're going to find that your, your soul will benefit as a result of that work. It's a sneaky little way that God makes His people selfish in that respect. Well, I want JT to do well because I want to do well. Right? Our interests are mutually fed by one another, and God has designed it that way. So think in that, in that, uh, in that framework, in that, uh, that concept, that what God does for them, He is doing for us. Now, elders, deacons, any of you men who are present this morning, JT and Carly, if y'all would just come forward and stand down in front of me here at the floor level, and we'll let our elders and deacons come surround you as we... Take a moment to pray over you. It's okay, we'll... Okay, let's pray. Father, from the very beginning, Your Word has created and sustained life. You spoke and all things came into existence. It is Your Word that gives life to Your people. Spoken, at times through visions, at times audibly, but most consistently and most permanently through Your Word. And it is the living Word, the Word that took on flesh, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, who gives us eternal life. We know that this design of yours is not by accident. That faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so right now we ask that as J.T. embarks on his ministry here at Edgewood to serve as a, as a shepherd, as a pastor here, as he does so, walking alongside with Carla and Carla alongside him with their children in tow, that you would cause them to be rooted and grounded deeply in the Scriptures, that they would find your Word to be like food and drink to them, that when everything else in life may grow dim and barren, they would still find delight in your Word. And Father, take that joy and that nourishment, that satisfaction, and cause it to overflow in their lives so that it spills out on the lives of your people here at Edgewood for our good and for our long-term health. Build up this body, we ask, through their ministry for your glory. We would ask that through their ministry you would add to our numbers, that you would add to the maturity of the body here at Edgewood so that we can point to you and say, the Lord is with us in all we do and He is causing all of His good pleasure to prosper in our hands. Do it so that Jesus Christ is magnified and exalted by the power of your Spirit who is in our midst, mightily working to bring all things together for good and for glory according to your plan. We pray this with faith and confidence that you will remain with us until our dying day. Amen. I'm going to let JT and Carla come out with me to the door so that you can greet them on your way out. Andy is going to enable it or is going to close us out with one more bit of congregational singing. Sing it loud so that we can hear it all the way in the back. All right? Go ahead. Let's stand as we close with a very appropriate song for today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, the doxology. Would you lift them up in praise?
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Oh. You're dismissed. God bless.